You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back to the show. You're here with Yona Bud on the Road to Recovery, and I'm uh, talking today about the kind of the trauma and the stuff that's going on behind the scenes, really about life in general, and specifically, I guess, in this article as it relates to things, um, the pandemic. But just generally, this show is about, if you're just tuning in for the first time, this show is about connecting people and uh, ideas and concepts around getting through difficult times and just kind of helping one another the best way that we can. <clears throat> so the article I'm referring to, the it starts off with a registered practical nurse is standing uh, at the end of a hall on the fourth floor of a McKenzie uh, Richmond uh, Hill Hospital, steps away, a typical day, cares for her medical patients, and so on. Wiping tears away from her eyes, she says, explains how the pandemic's made it difficult, their job even more difficult, or nursing even harder. Uh, the more the tasks, the more the worries, longer days, and so on. Uh, she details how COVID-19's ravaged not just her at work, but her family, her life at, uh, outside of home. Uh, her father, her husband became severely ill, and go on. The article is kind of, as you can imagine, um, you know, hard to listen, hard to read, right? As much as I'm sure it's hard to listen to me chat about it right now. But the frontline workers in our life, the people that are out there uh, doing what they need to do all the time, to keep us safe and healthy. Um, they're the ones that, you know, we keep talking about the impact it has and we kind of play a little bit of lip service, pay a little bit of lip service to it and move on past it. Um, I have a guest with me this evening. Her name is Iram Chagala and she is a trauma and ER nurse. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight, Iram. Thank you. It's um, a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so that's great. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you and on behalf of me and everybody who's listening for the incredible work that you and your colleagues do um, up and down the halls day and night. Um, so thank you. And I really appreciate that you're there. Uh, I, you know, I went through a situation with my mom recently. She wasn't well. So I can tell you firsthand, everybody that uh, nurses and ER folks are just like, they don't get any better. Um, but, you know, reading the article, I'm sure you heard a little bit about it. The, the, the situation as it's unfolded over the last uh I guess, man, the past 24 months now, um, how are you, like, before we get into the story, how are you managing and how are you doing? Well, uh, like I've said before, and I'll say it again, it's just honestly one step at a time, one breath at a time. That's, that's pretty much what, that's all you can really do. So you talk about, you know, that's a, that's kind of a, either a mindful saying or a saying from an AA meeting, but it's exactly where you need to come from. So when you talk about one breath at a time, one step at a time, is this something that um, you've kind of always engaged with in terms of a style uh, practicing, um, you know, being a practic you know, practicing nurse and trauma therapy in a trauma unit specifically? Is this something that has always been a mindset or more specifically now around uh, what you've lived through for the last 20, 24 months or so? I think this is something that I've kind of lived by for most of my life, but I would say that it's been reinforced, especially during the time of the pandemic. I'm talking here with uh, Aram Shigala. We're talking about uh, the trauma and the, and the tears and such behind uh, the scenes in hospitals today. Uh, and you shared with me that you're kind of take a mindful approach to things in terms of one step at a time or one day at a time, one tear, you know, one, one breath at a time. Uh, your colleagues. Is this something that you're finding is natural for them to, to engage in? Or are you finding it as difficult to kind of keep your colleagues in, in check as it is to kind of yourself and the patients? 
Well, everybody copes differently and, and handles stress and adversity in different ways, shapes and forms. Um, I think that it's when you're coping with stress, um, it's, it's not a one size fits all solution. But I, what I do believe is that with this mantra, so to speak, of one right. step at a time, one breath at a time, right. um, I think that it can be encouraging. And I think that it can really start leading my colleagues and others, even if you're not a healthcare professional and you're going through a really rough time, right. I think that it can just lead you and start steering you in the right di direction, like, it, like the, the start of the right direction, you know? kind of you like know, seeing the end of the light of the, of the tunnel, you know, yeah, exactly. But you know what, it's, what's interesting is that people find that, you know, folks like you and me, you know, people that are dealing with uh, people that are in trauma and have their own issues uh, that we're trying to help them with, you know, we should be okay. We should be able to get through all this and, you know, we should have better skills because we're in, in, in the trauma space and so on. I, for my perspective, I mean, I worked really hard at keeping it all together and sounds like you do too. Um, does that kind of bother you that people expect that you should be more bulletproof than just Joe and Jane average? I, I yeah, it kind of does. And I think it does uh, kind of bother some of my colleagues as well. I mean, yes, we do have to maintain a level of professionalism when we're on the job, of course, but at the end of the day, all of us are human beings. Right. So we are going to be experiencing emotions and we're all going to react in a different way. Um, some people are outspoken and they're able to vent right. and debrief about events and things with their colleagues. And if they have very supportive family members and friends right. and others just keep it bottled up. And some people react to stress in different ways. It could be um, more than just emotional. It even can go physiological and physical um, aspects of it as well. Yeah, you know, you, you're talking about, um, you know, the, the, the fact that people, you know, your colleagues are, you know, feel the same way. It, it, the difficulty is, you know, if you look at the commercial, there's a commercial that was some time ago, I haven't seen it in a while, where they're showing a nurse uh, in a stairwell crying her eyes out, I guess, after having a very difficult uh, experience and, or just being just broken down. Uh, and I, and I, it really got to me. Uh, it's difficult to do when you're in the face of other people's trauma, don't you think that, you know, as much as you're feeling that moment, maybe overwhelmed, you really got to kind of suck it up so that you put on the right kind of face for those that you're trying to help. Right. I would say that you have to be at your best composure. So as to encourage positivity uh, with those that are around you and those that you are caring for and family members as well. Yeah, I get it. But in reality, though, when, you know, you, you, you come, you, there must be times when you're coming down the hallway or into a, into a, a, a room or a unit and, and, you know, and you just, you know, maybe have just had enough. Are you able to step away and like take a break for a minute and catch your breath or, or, or kind of push it through until you get lunch break or something? I mean, if it's a very life-threatening situation, for example, we're so busy in a room, no matter what it could be. Um, it's, 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 an emergency situation, you have to be very focused. You have your game on your, your game face, your, your, your mind cap, everything is in there. So you're all focused and you're focused on the patient and your tasks and what you need to get done. And so, you know, in a situation like that afterwards, you know, you, most people will um, have the opportunity or 
you know, later on, if they're driving home, for example, will think about what happened and have that deep introspection um, or may think, okay, what could we have done better? Or what could I have done better? Or how can I learn about this in the future? But if it's in a situation where, you know, you have a few moments, you can say to yourself or what we say to ourselves is, okay, I need to step back for about, you know, a few minutes and I need a breather, you know, and it's good because what's encouraged for healthcare professionals. And of course, anybody in general is self-care. Yeah, I I hear you. So in terms of self-care, we're talking about eating, sleeping, good, good fitness and so on, making sure you have time to breathe and maybe meditate a little bit. Um, So I'm glad you brought that up. You know, if you looked at your job today, versus your job three years ago. Uh, What's the biggest change for you and your colleagues uh, in 2022 different than let's say, you know, 2019? Well, a lot has definitely changed. And I think that the pandemic has definitely given us a different perspective on how um, we live, the way that we act and the way that we are now, if you're going to be traveling, um, the way that we view illnesses now is also very different. So COVID is always a possibility for anybody that comes in presenting with symptoms, because back in the day, if someone came in with a sore throat, you'd think it was just a viral infection. But now we only got about 30 seconds left. If you were to do it all over again, um, just you in particular, if you were to do it all over again and have to live through what you just lived through for the last couple of years, would you still be a nurse? Absolutely. There's not a day that goes by that I would just give up. I don't believe in giving up. I'll tell you, you're the kind of people that we need more and more of. I'm talking to Aram Shigala. She's an amazing human being, a trauma nurse, uh, ER nurse as well. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show. We're going to come back. we got more stuff to do. It's Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. You have Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery. What a busy night we're having. It's just getting busier, so much more to do uh, and stuff to talk about. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're talking to people about how they're getting through their difficult times and you know others that are helping us get through difficult times. But that's the purpose of the show is try to help everybody's day be a little bit better, maybe get through some tough times together. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a little kumbaya, but I'm digging it. Hope you are too. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Casey House, if you haven't heard of them, an incredible organization. Uh, They announced on April the 4th that um, they launched the outpatient supervised consumption service program, uh, providing a second safe space for clients to use their own drugs while being monitored by the trained staff, provide emergency uh, medical care if needed, which is critical. A specialty hospital normally for people that are living with and at risk of HIV, um, which already puts them in a class of their own as far as I'm concerned in terms of a house full of superstars. Uh, Casey House is the first hospital in Ontario and the third in Canada to offer on-site supervised consumption as part of its health care. Um, you don't have to be a harm reduction expert to understand that this is essential according uh, Central Health Service, according to Jennifer Dooling, she's the principal at Genova Private Management and the chair of Casey House Board of Directors. Casey House, uh, are there open to register clients 24 hours a day, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m.? They have outpatient program, inpatient program, all kinds of interesting stuff. We'll find out more about them. Um, Hospital-based supervised drug use and overdose prevention is something Casey House feels people should be entitled to as part of overall healthcare, being able to safely use substances while on site keeps people connected to healthcare, says Dr. Ed Kucharski, Chief Medical Officer at Casey House, and my guest this evening. 
Dr. Kacharsky. Can I call you Ed? Of course, please do. Okay, Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, a, couple, a bunch of questions here. We'll, we'll get through the, the stuff that we can uh, in the short period of time, and then hopefully you'll, you'll like me enough that you'll come back another time. Uh, but a cu- couple of things. So one of the things that really been, just to get right to it, first of all, amazing that you're opening a second facility. I, I, I just think, you know, we need 25 of them, but I think you think so too. Uh, behind, you know, in my office, uh, I have a box full of fentanyl test strips. Yeah. And uh, I bought a hundred of them, uh, give them out to people where I can, uh, and basically test your urine and test the drugs mm-hmm. to see if they're, you know, if they're hot for fentanyl. Um, is that something, what about drug testing in, in the types of facilities you're talking about? It's one thing to use it in a safe environment, but is there a way that your, your clients are able to get a heads up on what they're using? So I would say we're very similar in our capabilities of drug testing. And unfortunately, it isn't as sophisticated as we would like. And so, you know, the same test strips that you have, I presume, are the same test strips that we might have. And, you know, they have their limitations. You know, they they don't test for all the analogs of fentanyl. Uh, They don't tell you how much there is. But there are some positive you know, things about it, you know, being a test strip, if it is positive, you know, there's fentanyl there. And so, you know, our clients can make decisions based around that, you know, don't use alone. And certainly if they're in our supervised consumption services, they won't uh, be alone or they could choose to use less. And for some of our clients too, it actually helps confirm what they're, what they're buying from their dealer. Exactly. exactly. So that is another positive uh, outcome for that. But again, you know, they do have their limitations. We, we don't just test for fentanyl, but we have test strips for benzodiazepines. And as you know, the, the drug supply is increasingly toxic with many different things in them. So benzos uh, has been a, another thing that we've been finding as well. You're talking about taste, uh, tainted benzodiazepines. And, and for people that don't know what a benzodiazepine is, give them a couple of, uh, of uh, names that they might recognize. Sure. So, so classically, the, the first uh, benzodiazepine that most people would have heard about is Valium uh, from the 1960s, but there are many different types of benzodiazepines that have evolved uh, since then. And what we're finding now is benzodiazepines that I, as a, a family doctor, haven't seen because they're used for other purposes like veterinary medicine and very powerful uh, benzodiazepines uh, in the drug supply that someone might be purchasing an opioid and get that as well, which puts people at even more risk of overdose. It's interesting. I don't want to belabor this point because we could do it for hours together, but I had a patient not long ago uh, show up in a hospital um, for a bunch of mental health related situations and uh, they tested his urine and he had just done a whole bunch of Coke and they couldn't find any. Oh, yeah, you know, they found all kinds of stuff. Uh, some ketamine, I think, is what you're referring to some in terms of some animal type stuff. Uh, uh, there's all kinds of veterinary meds that are out there, but uh, people just need to understand they're not using clean drugs. So the, the advantage to being in a in a safe consumption site from the from a user's perspective uh, is, I guess, uh, the benefit of having medical support around them. How do you deal with people that say, you know, you're catering to people who should know better? You know, like, why should they be using drugs at all? And why are we paying for them to these junkies to be in a place where they can get high uh, with medical support? How do you respond to that? Uh, We respond with compassion, (laughs) as we do at Casey House. Um, But I actually have to say, I'm surprised that we don't get that very frequently. But you're absolutely right. People will have a strong reaction. And um, I kind of think back to when I was growing up, and I, I grew up in the 80s. And that was, you know, the, I guess, maybe the height of the war on drugs with Nancy Reagan telling everybody drugs are bad. Yeah. And, you know, that seeped into, you know, I think people thinking that people who use drugs are bad. 
And, you know, I, I think we've made some progress in society in being a bit more compassionate and understanding. Um, and at the very, you know, the very basis of what we're doing is we're trying to save lives, right? People are dying from the toxic drug supply. Um, but if people don't get that in and of itself, we do have great evidence that, you know, doing uh, or providing uh, supervised consumption services can reduce the risk of harm. Um, you know, we have evidence that it reduces the transmission of HIV and hepatitis C, uh, eMERGE visits and subsequent hospitalization. So, you know, for someone who's just thinking about money and taxes, really it does save money uh, that way. Interesting. I, the comment I referred to earlier is, is the one you hear when people want to, you know, when someone wants to open a facility close to a neighborhood. Um, and it's that kind of, you know, kind of neighborhood response. But uh, uh, just for the record, you and I are exactly on the same side, um, maybe far away, but on the same side. Um, doctor, let me, uh, Ed, can I, how can we as a society, do you think, uh, do a better job of supporting people, uh, not just with substance use disorder, but, you know, there was a time I remember, I'm, you know, I've been, I'm an old guy, I've been around a long time. I had a very close friend who was one of the first HIV uh, positive people in Ontario. Uh, we were very close until he passed. And, and, and uh, you know, there was a time I lived through that with him and others, other friends of mine in that community um, who were, you know, chastised and, and really, you know, shunned as a result of being uh, potentially a, a spreader of something. Um, I, I, how do we do a better job of, with, of with dealing with mental health and addiction like we have learned to do with those that are, uh, you know, have the issue of, of being diagnosed with HIV. I think we've done a great job, a better job anyway, of, of being compassionate and understanding and warm and loving like we should be. How do we get there with addiction, do you think, and mental health? Because I think you see both. Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, it's a complex problem for, you know, many levels, you know, I think about, you know, the public and society, but also, you know, what we're doing in our healthcare education uh, programs uh, as well. I think fundamentally, it comes down to uh, thinking about uh, this not as a moral issue for, you know, people who use substance, but, but as a health issue. And you could say the same thing as, you know, some people may separate mental health uh, outside of, you know, health issues in general, but I think we're here to help people and, and not judge uh, people and that, you know, you can kind of uh, allow it to seep into our education programs, whether it's young doctors or nurses, but also out into the public. And I, I think over time, as you say, you know, we have done a better job at that. Um, and again, I think there's multiple uh, reasons for that. I, I think over time, we, you know, activists and shows like yours uh, and getting to understand perhaps even how the opioid crisis started right. um, in a lot of the books and media that are out there in the past year or so, I think actually has humanized people's experience. And really, um, I, I think it's made people a lot more understanding of how people have come to use substances for sure. Amazing. We've got a couple of only a couple of minutes, but a minute and a half left. Um, a, quick, a quick question. Uh, how do you feel about the concept of decriminalization? Do you think it's going to help what you do or hinder what you do? Uh, certainly, I would say it would help what we do. We, we really believe people who use substances should have a safe space and that people who use substances shouldn't be criminalized. And we think that um, ending criminalization of substance use will decrease stigma as we've already uh, talked about. But more importantly, I think it'll create pathways to improving health and outcomes because, you know, thinking about, uh, we both have uh, an inpatient supervised consumption site and an outpatient supervised consumption site. I'm gonna use the example of a, a client or patient who's 
on our inpatient ward getting treated uh, for pneumonia. You know, they may have tons of barriers of coming into getting care because they are using, whether it is criminalization or being judged for using, but by having a supervised consumption site on you know, our inpatient ward, they don't leave uh, they, they, and they don't have to hide their substance use and risk overdose. So we're actually have multiple uh, um, advantages uh, to this. Um, so, you know, in terms of decriminalization, we, we really do support calls for the federal government to decriminalize simple drug possession for personal use and develop policies, you know, subsequently that can really help people who do use uh, substances. You're an amazing man, an incredible doctor, I'm sure. And uh, anybody who gets to work with you would be a part of your life, I'm sure is blessed and uh, should think so. We'll have you back another time, like I said, because I could just do more and more of this. Uh, when we come back, there's more to talk about here. Yonabud, 640. Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, Ma, what's for lunch? What are we having for lunch? Oh, no, we're not going to have sandwiches again, are we? Uh, Dad, can we have, like, takeout? Can we have money to go to, to the store after at, at lunchtime and get our lunch there instead? Like, that's what kids say these days. I mean, when I was a kid, it was always a good lunch, but, you know, got a little boring after a while. You're listening to Yona Bud here on Road to Recovery, where we're talking about what to send your kids to school with at lunchtime. And, in fact, we have a dietitian who's going to join us right now. Her name is Natalie Georgieva. She's a registered dietitian specializing in eating disorder support. She's with JM Nutrition, and she's our guest this evening. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Yona. How are you? I'm good. I, I, do I want to be one of your kids at lunchtime or don't I? <laughs> of course you do. Okay. Tell me why. Are you, are you able, are we able to send kids to school with healthy things that are still fun to eat? Absolutely. Yes. It's all about how the food is presented. Um, of course, you know, how often the child's been exposed to that food, whether they've been involved in preparation, but of course kids can find food very fun and exciting. Okay, so for, I got a bunch of questions here, and we'll try to fly through them as best we can. Uh, but because uh, I'm just so excited to get you on the phone, I mean, food is be, as I get much older, food is becoming a, a real thing, uh, and I'm surrounded by people in my life, including my children, uh, who are now grown adults who are careful about what they eat. So you know, I'm very conscious of what goes in my tummy these days. But what should I include in my if I'm having my grandchildren over, and we usually do, and they have sleepovers? If I'm sending them to school on a Monday morning, I typically want to make it like the greatest lunch ever, but the nutritional value is probably less than zero. What should I include in my kids' lunches if I'm sending them to school? Well, Yona, you know what's funny? You mentioned sandwiches earlier, and as much as they get a bad rep, sandwiches and wraps, kids tend to like simple things. But of course, it depends on what components are in the sandwich or the wrap. But uh, I find that the simpler the meal, usually the better. And kids tend to like what I call finger foods. So foods that don't necessarily need to be eaten with utensils. They can just freely pick them up with their hands. That makes it more fun. So if we're thinking about a sandwich, uh, kids tend to also really like having what, what are called deconstructed meals. So meals okay. where their individual components are separated. Usually it's a container divided and you can put the little ingredients into each compartment and then they can actually build it themselves. So if you oh, cool. really so hang on, hang on, hang on. So send you send the guy. I got to cut you off because we'll never have enough time. But and I don't mean to be rude. It's just I'm sorry. It is what it is. But no, so no. so 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 that proportionate stuff in their in their in their containers, and then they what build their own sandwich? 
Yeah, exactly. So you can crack technically slices of bread or or maybe crackers and some sliced meat, maybe some cheese, have a section for perhaps some fruit, maybe berries or grapes they can grab with their hands, veggies and dip. Kids tend to really like having a dip with veggies as opposed to plain veggies. So that makes it a lot more fun. And when we think about the different food groups to incorporate in the meal, we want to have a little bit of everything. So some protein, that could be maybe chicken, for example, some fat, that could be the cheese, let's say, or maybe the dip for the veggies, and then some fruit or veggies, of course, uh, and then the carbohydrates. So that would be the, the bread or the wrap. Okay, but what about proportions? I know that uh, I, you know with I deal with kids that have eating disorders, and so do you. It always seems to have a mom or somebody in their life going, "You're not eating enough," or "You're eating too much." What about the whole concept of proportions? Like, how much food should I send uh, in the lunchbox itself? Like, am I am I uh, am I filling it to the brim so there's more than enough, or just enough? And how do I know that? Yeah, that's a really great question. I would say to be on the safe side, you could certainly pack more, but kids are very intuitive and they know exactly how much food is enough for them. So if they end up coming home with food that hasn't been eaten, sure, maybe it was if they didn't like the food, that might have been why they didn't finish it. But they also could say, you know, I had enough. I'm full. Oftentimes, parents tend to get really concerned that their child isn't eating enough, and that might be a very valid concern in the area of eating disorders, but otherwise, children are very in tune with their hunger and fullness cues, and so their appetite fluctuates on a day-to-day basis, so some days they might be eating way more than usual, other days it might be less, but it balances out overall. have a message here from someone who says, my daughter likes the same lunch every day. Is that okay? Yeah, you know what? It could be a phase for a child. I've seen cases where children are really enthralled in a certain meal or snack, and then for whatever reason, that high just kind of fades and they start to be interested in other foods. So it depends on what the meal is, I would say, or what the snack is. But if it's an overall balanced meal with those different food groups, then that's fine. Yeah. Um how cool does a lunch have? This is not this is this is my own question. Uh, how cool does a lunch have to be so that you don't look like that jerky kid in class? I remember when I, when I was a kid. No disrespect to any of the kids in my class. I don't even remember who after them were. It was when Flintstone was still taking you know uh, his his daughter to school on a dinosaur. But uh, you know there were kids in my class that brought you know foods that smelt real bad, didn't look real great, and then there were kids in my class that brought like these awesome you know hero sandwiches or chicken wings or pizza you know they were like the heroes you wanted to like to steal their lunch if you could but you know how how do you fit in your sort of ethnic cooking perhaps if that's where you come from with the fact that you know most kids are like you say you know uh, meat you know it's meat sandwiches cheese whatever um how cool does it have to be and how do you make it cool that is a really interesting question bit of a tough question i would say there are certain foods that can definitely give off a bit of a stronger aroma And I know for kids, they can be a little bit tougher to bring those foods. 
Uh, even things like tuna, that's a common one I think of that yeah, has exactly. more of an aroma. So those ones yeah. might be a little bit tougher to bring just because of the strong aroma. And it might, you know, turn off other children and kids can sometimes say mean things. So I might recommend, I find cold foods tend to be better in terms of scent. They're not okay. typically as, as strong smelling. So if you're able to bring a cold meal instead, uh, I think that would be ideal to avoid that situation. Yeah, I remember years ago when we were still allowed to travel and, uh, you know, sit on an airplane and actually eat food. Um, I, I remember, you know, my, one of my favorite sandwiches are like uh, party sandwiches, you know, half tuna, half egg, you know, the those combination. And I was all set to go all packaged up in a really nice plastic Tupperware, all sectioned off, ready to rumble, got on the plane, popped open my lunchbox, my little lunch container, and boy, did it, it stink. And I ate it anyway, but I'm sure everybody's looking at me going, wow, why would the guy bring the tuna? Anyway, um I digress. Should kids get involved in making their own lunch? And if so, does that improve their ability? Does it improve their consumption value in terms of actually eating what they make? Oh, my gosh. Kids should definitely be involved. And there's no age limit as to when kids should start being involved. I say the younger, the better, because when they're involved in the actual making of the food, not only does it allow for bonding experience with their parents, their caregivers, but they're much more interested in the food. They're much more likely to end up trying the food, especially if it's something new that maybe they haven't had before. So that would be amazing. And I would say, depending on how old the child is, you can decide how complicated you want the task to be. So if they're really young, it might be something as simple as just mixing ingredients together. Maybe as they get older, they're measuring things, chopping things under your supervision, of course. But that is always great to do. And there can also be an educational component tied into that if you want to make that a lesson of, um, you know, why it's important for us to eat this food group, the different ways that we can prepare it. Keeping in mind, though, I would say what kinds of nutrition messages are being promoted. I would just say to parents, be mindful of trying to avoid the whole concept of good food, bad food. That we want to try to stay away of because that can lead to a more negative relationship with food. But definitely talking about why it's important to have them. That's amazing. I'm uh, talking to uh, Natalie Georgieva. She is a registered dietitian specializing in eating disorders. You know, the problem is you did a great job. That means we're going to have you back. So uh, you'll have to keep all of your Saturday nights free just in case Yona calls. Uh, but uh, we'd love to have you come back. We have all kinds of nutritional uh, conversations or d- d- conversations around nutrition and kids and eating disorders and so on. Um, so I'd love to have you come back and uh, we'll talk some more. So uh, please do so and uh, have an amazing week and thank you for joining us this evening natalie georgieva she's a registered dietitian and she specializes in eating disorders and she works with jm nutrition so if you're looking for some help some guidance some information she is definitely the way to go thank you so much for joining us we'll be right back with another segment here before we go to big break this is yona bud 640 toronto Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. How do people typically grieve if there is such a thing as typically grieving? Well, that's a really important question to realize there is no typical grief. We're... Uh, Our loved ones are unique to us. Our relationships are unique, so no one grieves alike. And uh, many times when we encounter the same loss, someone dies in our family, we think, of course, we're all going to grieve alike. But the reality is we don't. 
and uh, part of the the work is to tend to your own grief and let everyone else tend to theirs and it's a a hard thing for people to do hey there welcome back this is yona i mean is there really a is there really a way to grieve a standard way to grieve i mean do we all do it the same no you know some people celebrate some people go off into a into a, a bit of a of a um a cocoon and kind of hide from the world. Some people you know, are highly depressive. Some people deal with all kinds of guilt and regret. You know, everyone grieves differently. And it's interesting about grief is, you know, how much of grief is really about the person who passed versus about us. You know, I found myself often thinking about situations well, you know, while my mom was, wasn't well. And then of course, after her passing about things I, I wanted to do for her, but they made me feel good. And the conflict of kind of being stuck between is this selfless or not? And I'm, and, and truly understanding, you know, what the heck does selfless really mean? Anyway, it, COVID's changed now how we live and how we die, how we grieve according to this story here. And, and just in fact, right? Uh, so last week marked the second anniversary, as you know, of the World Health Organization's declaration of the pandemic. And in, uh, those two years over, this is a, a, a story that takes place in, um, in Australia from the Australian perspective. In the last two years, 5,500 Australians have died from COVID and approximately 300,000 Australians have lost their lives uh, from other things in total. So the necessary public health protections have affected people's access to dying loved ones, limited their participation in, you know, rituals like funerals and reduced the ability through social distancing that, you know, would have allowed people to get together more often and see loved ones prior to passing. And more than half reporting problematic more than half of the people in the in, in, in Australia that we're talking about in this particular study have been reporting problematic grief symptoms so Australia has seen a relatively low number of COVID infections and deaths particularly prior to recent months so understanding the impact of the COVID deaths for them on the people left behind meant looking overseas so what they did is a member of the pandemic grief project uh, the, the writer partnered with, partnered with some overseas researchers to survey people in the US so now the study is coming um, into the U.S., into North America, who had a close person, a close personal um, relation die uh, from COVID. And they found that 57% of those surveyed reported some level of problematic grief symptoms, so such as a change in identity, feelings of meaning, meaninglessness, uh, wishing to die themselves to a degree of uh, where psychological therapy would be advised. So people not over 57% problematic grief symptoms. Now, normal people, normal, no, no, I shouldn't say normal people, people under quote unquote normal circumstances prior to a pandemic or something such as, um, you know, have difficult times grieving. Not everybody grieves the same as we know. For some people, it's highly uh, emotional, highly psychologically impacting, um, can affect the the ability to eat, sleep, uh, have any joy, um, and so on. So it becomes a very um, different and difficult period for, for everyone. Depends on who they are, right? Um, it also found that 70% of the sample coped with their loss using drugs or alcohol for at least days, if not weeks, during the loss period. So this, you know... <laughs> Do you want to get high and you want to get drunk when your life is upside down and you just lost somebody who's really important to you? Probably. Um, do you want to escape and find some way to numb out the pain and the, the distress that we feel? Yeah, probably. Is it a solution that actually does anything that help you cope with your loss? Not really. You know, maybe that first shot of vodka or that, you know, 
uh, first, you know, half a glass of wine or something kind of gets you through it, you know, sort of, you know, prior to making a speech at the funeral, doing a, doing a eulogy. I mean, I did a eulogy. It was, it was, took me nine tries to write it and finally delivered it and in the way my mother would have wanted me to. And it was most difficult thing I ever had to write. But anyway, um, back to the study. So we found that most participants reported high levels of symptoms, generalized anxiety, about 70%, depression, about 75%, problematic grief, not sure how they identified that, at 66%, and impaired functioning in care areas such as work, leisure, and family relationships. You know, for me, I found it very difficult to just go back to work, you know, and just, you know, and it was, listen, I'm a therapist, right? So I'm sitting and listening to people's complaints and, and problems and issues. And, you know, for a couple of days there, I just had to shut my practice down for a while because honestly, as horrible as it sounds, I'm being honest with all of you because you're my friends and I love you. We're family. Like I didn't want to hear it. <laughs> I just didn't want to, I know it sounds awful. I just didn't want to hear everyone's stuff. I was dealing with my own stuff, Right. And, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, someone's got a kid who's not cleaning his room and smokes too much weed and is disobedient, you know, for that moment wasn't such a big deal to me. You know, I just lost my mom. I was dealing with grief and loss and, you know, anything anybody said seemed to be kind of mundane and trite as it related to what's going on in my life. But that was me being selfish. And that's part of the grieving process is that you're allowed to be selfish. You're allowed to take the time you need to get through it. It's, it, there's no rush. There's no timetable. Interesting in Judaism, in, 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 in the practice that I, that I follow, you know, there's seven days of what's called Shiva, which is a mourning period. Uh, for a man who, for, for a spouse, it, the, the, the grieving process by definition in the, in the Old Testament is, is a 30 day period. Uh, so God forbid you lose a child, you lose a, life, a wife or a husband or, you know, the grieving period according to Jewish law is only 30 days. But if you lose a parent, it's 11 months. It's 11 months of going to synagogue, saying prayers. If that's, if, again, if you're inclined to do it, if that's who you are, that's who I chose to be for my mother, for, and for me. And that's the kind of guy I was, you know, prior to her passing. So now there's 11 months of, of, of restrictions. I'm not supposed to go to parties. I'm not supposed to be anywhere where there's loud music and people dancing. I'm not supposed to really be engaged in, in anything joyful. Although I do have a son getting married. I got a couple of, you know, positive relationship type things going on in people's lives that I want to celebrate. And, you know, I'll be there, but celebrating in a different kind of way, right? It, that 11 months is enough time as I now know it to get the grief out of you, so to speak. But not everybody does that. Some people, it's, you know, they're, it's a week, it's a month. Some people grieve forever. You know, I, I referred to when I was growing up, you could tell I grew up in an area that was primarily, um, uh, Italian, um, immigrants, um, for, uh, for the most part. And, you know, when you saw, you know, a young mother all dressed in black, um, for more than a couple of days, now it's fashionable. Then it was a sign of, of, of loss. And some of these women, I remember, were young in their 40s, early 50s, and never ever went on to have any kind of life. I, I don't think that's healthy, a healthy um, method either. But who am I to say? So we compare those who believe losing someone prior to COVID versus someone who uh, lost someone after COVID. And the foundings found that the team did a, a design a national study to answer the question. We aim to understand the grief experiences, supports, needs of the people in Australia who have been bereaved from any cause during the COVID pandemic. And so far, 2,000 bereaved Australians have particip- participated, excuse me, 
in the research and uh, shared their experiences of grieving and so on. And the early results suggest that people who have lost a loved one during the pandemic or something similar to a pandemic are experiencing more grief, higher anxiety, higher depression than would have been expected prior to the pandemic. So the study's open for recruitment. They're still uh, they're still recruiting people now towards the end of March. This is an active survey, by the way. This is not uh, closed by any stretch of the imagination and very current. The team intends to develop a national bereavement action plan in the coming months to address uh, grief and loss in Australia based on what they're learning from their study. The international findings coupled with the preliminary Australian findings are strong indicators that as the pandemic, as a pandemic continues, we're likely to see sustained struggles with grief. So... Um, bereaved people commonly seek support for their grief, right? You know, if you're attached to a, to a synagogue or to a church or a mosque or any kind of religious organization, there's typically an opportunity to connect with a, with a clergy of some sort, someone in some organizations and some, uh, uh, churches and, uh, religious uh, structures. There are people in the community that just focus on, uh, grief and loss. You know, they're usually elders. Uh, they usually have great experiences. Uh, but people are, you know, we're now finding in the, based on the Australian study that almost a third reported, uh, didn't receive the support they would have liked to during the pandemic. Um, and it really created a huge gap for individuals that are now trying to figure out how to get their heads around, around the grieving. So, you know, I, I can only imagine, uh, based on my experience, uh, what it would be like for someone to do this alone. I mean, I have a, a pretty big family and, uh, lots of, lots of community and friends and so on, thankfully. Um, and, you know, they were there to rally and be supportive. But for those that don't have anybody, you know, I remember years ago, a friend of mine in, in, in our community called to, to put 10 men together to, to say prayers and to bury, uh, someone we knew from the community who had nobody. His parents were long gone, didn't have any brothers or sisters, no, and no aunts and uncles that we knew of. And he passed away. He was, um, I don't know, you might remember him. He was Ralph. Um, he was the guy at the, at all the Blue Jay games and, um, all the football games that ran up and down the, 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 out the stairs, you know, handing out, uh, give, selling, uh, popcorn and, 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 and programs for years and years and years and years. He eventually passed away and, and no one was even there to collect his body. Anyway, long story short, you know, it, it, it he would have, passed away in, a, in, in, in the coroner would have buried him, you know, kind of, you know, uh, una- um, kind of anonymously. And, you know, it would have been a horrible experience, I'm sure, for him. But not everybody gets that opportunity. And for those of us that walk away from, the, from loss with grief and, and guilt, like guilt is the worst one, things you wish you could have done. Guess what, my friends? You can't go backwards. Don't beat yourself up for something you can't do, you can't fix, you can't change. Just look up to the sky or out to the lake or look at a star somewhere or a bird in a tree, some way that you feel connected to your lost person and they'll hear you. I'm pretty sure of that. We'll be right back after a long break here. This is Jonah Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. You're on the Road to Recovery with Yona Bud here on Global News 640 Toronto. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. If you want to uh, chime in and uh, share any information or thoughts, ideas, comments, anything like that, it's an interactive show. We want to hear from you anytime. We're glad to uh, take your calls. Um, 
you know, we are, are in a point where there's a lot of uh, domestic issues going on, family issues, family court issues, um, divorce, separation. People are learning, uh, many more people, I believe, learning that uh, maybe they can't live together so well since uh, living under difficult circumstances over the last couple of years while being locked down during the pandemic. Um, and there's a conversation uh, roaming around about uh, divorce lawyers and um, how they actually hear. And, and, you know, I deal, obviously, in, in my practice, we deal with situations often where people, patients, uh, have issues with uh, custody or separation or getting out of a bad situation, being a bad marriage, bad uh, relationship. Um, and I often send uh, patients, communicate with um, uh, family lawyers to try to get them the best care that they can and the best representation and, ad- and the best advocates we can. Um, but, you know, it's difficult for a lot of um, attorneys, a lot of lawyers to deal with family-related devastation. Uh, you know, the psychological stuff, the stuff that we're talking about here is the emotional stuff around around, um, you know, what, what separation and divorce looks like for a lot of people, major depression, right? Severe anxiety, extreme levels of stress. These are the kinds of things that most clients that visit a divorce lawyer or a family lawyer, I'm sure, uh, share and, and, and have to deal with day by day. The question is, are the lawyers themselves trained and capable and ready to deal with some of the more complicated stuff that aren't so, isn't so straightforward as it relates to law itself. Uh, my guest this evening is Leanna Townsend. She's the counsel and chair of the Family Law Group at Mills and Mills LLP. They're barristers and solicitors. <clears throat> She's joining us this evening. Thank you, Leanna, for joining us and staying up so late. How are you today? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. So, you know, there's a lot of conversation, um, and, and I've, you know, obviously I, I, um, I, it's nice to know that there's a family law group at Mills and Mills. It now opens up the opportunity for me to send people elsewhere as well, but hard to find a good, uh, family lawyer who gets it, who understands the needs of the, uh, emotional and mental health relationship, uh, between the situation, the legal situation they're in and their clients slash pay, you know, our patients, their clients, um, well being. Um, how is that any different today than it was, let's say, a couple of years ago before the pandemic um, kind of locked us all down and made us look from the inside out, so to speak? Well, I think that right now a lot of people, you know, just generally are going through really tough times and there's, you know, a rise in mental health issues, you know, uh, generally across the population as a result of, you know, the lockdown and just everything going on in the world right now. And so, you know, that is carrying over into the family law world. And I've found over the last couple of years, my practice has been you know, busier than ever. And it just seems to be nastier. There's more conflict and people are, yeah. there's a higher yeah. level of distress amongst clients. And so, you know, it's definitely showing up, uh, you know, in the courts and uh, in the family law space. Uh, you know, one of the articles, uh, the article goes on to say here that um, lawyers end up turning themselves into sounding boards without offering a lot of, uh, a lot more than just an empathetic nod or a tissue or something. And then, the, you know, some, some lawyers, as it goes on to say, divorce lawyers that do try to address any psychological component of the client's life are dangerously overstepping their role as a legal advisor and can create more harm than good. You know, I don't buy that, right? See, I, I, I've, I've worked with lawyers. I've been in practice for a lot of decades, you know, over four decades and uh, <clears throat> worked with a lot of different lawyers in a lot of different firms doing a lot of great work. Uh, you know, I was trained years ago under a guy named Stanley of Ruskin, who was one of the first uh, advocates for kids. He was uh, one of the first uh, official guardian 
and uh, type lawyers way back when, uh, you know, a long, long time ago. So I've been around this for a long time. And, you know, uh, it's, it's, they're and really great lawyers do a great job of understanding their patients or their clients, listening to what they have to say, providing them with, you know, referrals to people like me and other forms of therapeutic solutions and so on. Um, that's, you know, that seems to be the best place for them to to practice. Now we're talking about the possibilities of of lawyers now adding a a, a segment in their education moving forward and training for uh, those that are already called to the bar and practicing around being you know a little more psychological training and a little more around kind of hand holding therapeutically and so on. Good idea or not a good idea? I I think it's a good idea. Um, a lot of the job of a family law lawyer. Um, you know, at times is providing some level of emotional support to clients. And I think if you like, you know, in my case, I've kind of in my own life had certain issues I've had to work through and I've been very open to, you know, therapy and things like that. And so I have had exposure to a, a lot of different um you know, modalities that, that I use. And so I don't, obviously with clients, I don't act like a therapist and, and use those, you know, types of things, but I'm, I'm aware of them and know how to direct people to them. Um, but if somebody who, you know, perhaps hadn't been through some of the life experiences that I've been through and they're a lawyer and they're just starting out and they're younger as well and maybe don't have experience dealing with people as much who are in distress, I think that, you know, to some level of, you know, training on how to deal with people who are highly distressed or people who are traumatized or people who are suffering from PTSD would be helpful um, for for all family lawyers um, because the reality is like that we are dealing with people who are, you know, in some cases they could be suicidal. They, you know, they have, it could be an active addiction. Like there's all sorts of things that could be going on. And if you don't handle it properly, you could make a situation much worse for somebody. And, you know, somebody goes and shoots their wife, their ex-wife, and, you know, and blows themselves up as well. And so the consequences can be quite significant if something isn't handled properly. Yeah, so it's knowing, you know, it's knowing when to stop and start, right? I mean, I get people asking me legal questions all the time because I've, you know, been involved in, you know, hundreds of cases as a as a criminal as a uh, an investigator with family related stuff, custody battles and so on. So, <clears throat> but I know the line. I know where I shouldn't be trying to practice law and where I should be trying to, you know, give a little bit of advice. It's hard to find that fine line because you know that you really want to help a lot, right? So, it makes it difficult. And and I got I got to tell you just listening to you and hearing the, the the real empathy and the 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 realness in your voice like that's what it takes it takes people like you to talk to people that are going through that kind of stuff and say hey you know what i'm not a therapist but you know i was going through a rough time not so long ago and this is what really worked for me like i think that's so real and so special and makes you so remarkable in your forget about what kind of law you practice just the kind of person i want to send people to because you get it you understand it because you're you know you're living you're not you're not you know you're you're, you're sharing what you've lived through as opposed to you know i'm a lawyer i came from a and i'm I'm sitting in an ivory tower so to speak somewhere and you know i don't really get it um 
we got to find more people like you or train more people like you to draw from their life experiences. Cause I think you're absolutely right. Some training would be great, but you know, a lot of these young guys and gals that are in, you know, law school, you know, a whole bunch of them I've, I've known over the years of practice when they were in high school and in first year in the university. Now they're, you know, starting to practice law. A lot of them have like remarkable life experiences that they've lived through and done well and thrived as a result of getting good help. Like that's what they need to draw from, right? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, all of us in our work, we draw on our own personal experience. And so if you've been through, you know, something yourself, I always think, you know, as a divorce lawyer, I am divorced. So I know what it's like to be divorced. I understand, you know, how that feels and and the stresses of it. And I think that that does make me a better lawyer because I can relate to what my clients are going through. And, you know, same thing with other types of professions. And, you know, often people who do therapeutic work with people who have addiction issues, they went through an addiction, you know, issue themselves potentially. And and so they relate. And so, you know, I definitely think that's true. And we, we, we draw on our life experiences. And I think that that can make us better at what we do because we have more compassion for people because we know what it's like to be there and how, you know, challenging it can be. And I, you know, everyone has their own experiences they draw on um, and, you know, some brings different experiences to the table with what they're dealing with. But I definitely think that that's something, you know, as a lawyer that makes someone can make someone a much more effective advocate. Uh, yeah, as, as long as you're comfortable, you know, you have to be, some, you know, you got to be someone like, you know, like you that's comfortable enough in their skin and what, and then what they've done and what they've learned that they can talk about it. So it's getting rid of that stigma of, oh my God, I can't let my client know that I actually had an anxiety disorder, you know, a couple of years ago during my divorce. And whereas it's not a weakness, it's a tremendous strength. So, uh, I think you and I are, are 100% aligned. Uh, we only got a couple of minutes. I'm definitely going to have you back if you're willing to join us another time because yeah, I'd love you're that. A, a, a remarkable resource, TD related stuff. Leanna Townsend is my guest this evening. She's the counsel and chair of the Family Law Group at Mills & Mills LLP Barristers and Solicitors. Uh, look her up if you have advice, you need advice, you have an issue, uh, you're in the middle of a mess. Um, sounds to me like this is a, this is a, a, a litigator, this is an advocate that you, uh, you need to talk to. At least get some advice and, uh, Miller, Mills & Mills are a well-known, very well-respected firm, so it's a great call to make and, uh, she's an excellent guest, so I'm sure an excellent lawyer. Uh, gonna have you back for sure another time. We're going to go to break now because I'm running over and getting all kinds of buzzers and stuff and people throwing me off the air. So we'll do this again <laughs> soon, uh, Leanna. Thank you and uh, good luck to you. Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Members of the community often face financial hurdles um, and they're not able to pay for the fashion that they want to go to two experts in fashion to find out what they like and then have a wardrobe created for free is a huge huge boon hey there welcome back this is yona bud you are on the road to recovery if you want to play with us tonight 416-870-6400 or triple eight two two five eight two five five. just before we get to the story here it's now ten nineteen. do you know where your children are your loved ones or your pets or your seniors you know where everybody is if not you probably should get a handle on them make sure that everybody's where they need to be and that they're safe and if you have a real problem you're really concerned call 911 immediately and let them know if you need to reach out to us do so at 416-870-6400 and our staff will connect you and I together and I'll do what I can to help you uh, in the moment.
Anyway, Samuel Bramer is the co-founder of Transforming Style. He's our guest uh, on hold here. Uh, when he was in high school, he used fashion to try to hide his sexuality. He said that at the time, he didn't want his style to express too much. He avoided bright, bold colors and patterns. It wasn't really, he says, until after high school when I came out to my family and friends and I was really on this journey of accepting myself and finding myself that I started to express myself through fashion. Now he's 33 years old from Winnipeg. He's helping others within the LGBTQ community find their individual style through his newly formed not-for-profit transforming style. It's open to anybody in their community, in that community, facing socioeconomic barriers. Uh, he goes on to say in the nonprofit's process, which he calls a style journey, uh, when a client requests a private consultation, the team learns more about the person, who they are, and how they want a fashion to reflect that. The virtual consults are followed up with an in-person session to try clothes on. We want folks to be able to be true to themselves and feel uh, that they're um, being heard, comfortable and confident with who they are. Previously worked that he worked as a stylist in several Canadian cities. Um, what we like to say is that we're breaking down barriers, building confidence, and so on. The transforming uh, style, uh, their opportunity is to uh, make sure that people get connected ultimately to some form of care. Um, there's a team of about 10 people, including beauty consultants and so on, that are part of this uh, process. And um, it's interesting because, you know, when you're feeling a little down and depressed, you know, one of the most amazing things is that um, when you feel good about wearing a new suit or new dress or new piece of clothing, it really does um, boost you, make you feel better about who you are. Um, anyway, Samuel, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, first of all, kudos on the great work you're doing, brother. And uh, um, really, our, our, our strength and blessings go out to you to make sure that you and your organization continue to do the great work. So give me an idea kind of how this, I mean, I, I read the article and, you know, it kind of is, is a, a vanilla version of, I'm sure, what really led you here. Um, give me an idea of, of sort of how you came to the conclusion that, because it's not just about clothes, right? It's about clothes and then ultimately getting people the help that they need. How did you come to terms with this or come up with this idea and how did you get started? Yeah, well, um, I really believe that everyone has the right to express their true selves. And, you know, I wanted to create a safe and welcoming place where anyone on their 2SLGBTQIA plus style journey um, can find the resources and support that they really need um, to celebrate their true self and do this also through style. Right. And so give me an idea how it kind of started. I mean, did you just, you know, you sort of help one person kind of, you know, quietly on your own and it's kind of led to something like how did this go from a great idea to an actually functioning organization that's doing very well right now? Yeah. So I had, you know, the idea to do this and with colleagues and friends, I was styling folks on the side and really helping them on the style journey. And we realized very quickly that there was a need for this um, within Canada. So we came up with Transforming Style and really um, it's been amazing since we started and we're receiving tons of requests from all over Canada and even from the United States. Now, where are you, like, okay, so you're getting requests from some, so, so give me an idea of what that request looks like, um, Samuel. Give me an idea of, of what that, you know, what does that request look like? So I, I'm, I'm part of, you know, I'm someone in your community um, or in, in that community, in your community, in that community that needs to reach out. Tell me how that how that goes. Yeah, so people are reaching out to us via email, on social media, through our website, and they're really excited at the opportunity to really have experts in the fashion industry to really um, assist them and guide them expressing their true self through fashion. 
So we have folks who are in the process of transitioning or someone who's just come to terms with their sexuality. And it's really such a big part of who we are. So they're really looking to us for that expert advice to really guide them um, because our individuality is what really makes us beautiful. And um, to express oneself through fashion really does this. And really to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is really the greatest accomplishment. Right. And, and by the way, I don't think this is just something that you have to be, you know, part of a gay community to to enjoy the benefit from. I, I'm sort of hoping I could get your number later and make sure that, you know, <laughs> what I'm wearing works for me. I'm constantly, you know, I was, I'm constantly kind of in, you know, in, in stretchy Lululemons. If it doesn't stretch, I don't wear it. But, right. um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I'm giving off the right image for a man my age. But so, uh, but it's not really, it's not just really a gay thing, right? I mean, it's anybody who really needs to find their, find their footing and fashion seems to be, you know, you see these young kids in school that are dressed all in black and quote unquote goth clothing and so on. You know, there many of them are I see in my practice. You know, it's just a way to stand out, a way to be different, a way to kind of connect. Um, now, in, in the community that you're that, that you're serving, and I understand you built this business with your husband uh, Keith. And, and and is this something that the two of you do full time now, or do either one of you have like a a day job, so to speak. Yeah, so now we are um, doing this full-time. We have our um, flagship location in Winnipeg. We just opened up a second location in Calgary with plans to open up in Toronto and Saskatoon um, in the early summer. Cool. So, so when you say open up, you're talking about physical facilities where ultimately people go and try on the clothes. Right, yeah, it would be a physical location. Very cool. Um, how is it that you guys, I mean, this is kind of an aside and maybe too personal, but you can tell me. So how, how is it that you're able to work together, live together and be together? Do you find that some days it's a little too much? <laughs> no, we work really well together and we have our separate, uh, workspaces in the home. So things are going, uh, going well so far. Um, and we're just really excited to really be expanding this throughout the country and really being able to serve as many folks as possible. So are you finding that with a lot of the people that you talk to, especially perhaps the younger ones, that it's a function of not, you know, in, in the in the in the outset of your of the article in the beginning of the article talks about how you, you know, you avoided certain kinds of clothes and certain kinds of colors, certain kinds of patterns um, when someone, quote unquote, comes out. Is that, you know, is it your feeling that that's the time to wear the, the kinds of colors, the kind of patterns, the kind of uh, designs and, and, and trends that, you know, that, that they're comfortable without fear of somebody going, oh, wow, you know, he, he's dressed in such bright colors, he looks so gay, or she's dressed in such masculine right. colors, she looks so dykey. Like, you know, those kinds of horrible expressions that they must hear from people. How does somebody get to a point where they're able to dress so that the inside and the outside match without mm -hmm. the fear of repercussion? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that's why we go beyond the style journey and we also offer support. So um, lots of times we have folks coming to us who are interested in the style portion of it, but really need that extra support um, with our therapists and peer support workers to really, you know, come to terms with their true self and be comfortable with who they are. And sometimes that work um, goes beyond the style journey and you need a therapist or peer support worker to help you figure everything out. So, you know, while our style is a statement and it says, you know, how we communicate to the world who we are. And for many of us and many individuals in the queer community, it's actually a matter of being seen. So, you know, we uh, believe that everyone right. has the right to be seen, heard and understood. And by cultivating this personal style, 
it's so important because it not only tells the world who you are, but it's a journey to finding yourself as well and to better understand and love yourself. Yeah, because I think I think for some for many people, you know, um, I think you need for all of us, I think, frankly, whether you're in the queer community or not, I, I think for all of us, it, it takes a certain kind of confidence or certain kind of, of uh, mindset to be able to wear that new hairstyle, to be able to wear that bright, that bright color or those, you know, funky pants or those, you know, you know brilliant design, um, you know, to be able to wear that out is not just a function of whether it looks nice on, it's whether you can actually connect on the inside to feel good wearing it so you're not walking around, you know, feeling like everyone's staring at you, and if they are, that's okay too. That's that's a big job, right? So you talk a lot about mental health supports and therapists and, and peer support. Give me an idea what those people you know are like, where they come from, their skill sets, and so on. Yeah, so we have um, a team made up of 100% volunteers. So everyone is volunteering their time graciously. And we have professional therapists and peer support workers. And we're honestly receiving as many requests for styling as we offer support. Um, you know, it started back when I styled my first client. And she required support beyond the style journey. And what I found was that there's some great organizations out there who offer mental health support, but there is such a long wait to get in for yeah. support, especially given COVID. So folks, folks are waiting up to a year to get into support. And I just thought this was unacceptable. So we offer support that is immediate and there is no time frame or time limit on how long you access the support. Wish you all the best of luck. I'm excited to uh, to hear back from you and uh, maybe get a chance to meet someday so you can look at what I'm wearing and tell me how I need to fix it. Uh, <laughs> Samuel Brenner, co-founder of Transforming Style, great guest and uh, just one of the one of the good people out there doing what needs to be done to make our world a better place. Thanks for joining us. We'll have you back on again. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about why the Gen Less Society, well, Gen Z Society, are less worried about fraud uh, they're losing a fortune to all kinds of online stuff, and you'd think these young people that are computer savvy would know better. We're going to talk about that as soon as we get back. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Road to Recovery, no one has called in or texted us to let us know or called to say that I'm not using the English language properly. Anyway, welcome back. 416-870-6400-888-225-8255 if you want to join in on the conversation. My friend Dennis, who you might have heard, was our caller a little earlier. He lives in Burlington all by himself, and he's got some uh, some medical issues, and the key one being that he can't see. So if you're in Burlington, you've got a church organization or a community organization or something that's established because I'm not going to send strangers to his house, you got to be legit. If you guys want to figure out a way to help Dennis, we'd love to be part of that process. So give us a call, 416-870-6400. Not to get on air, because we don't need to know this, know enough to broadcast it. Just share your information with Natasha, and I will call you myself after the show later on this week to see if we can set up some opportunities to get Dennis some people to just kind of help him out a little bit. Maybe come read him a story, bring him a coffee, like not so bad, right? And you'll feel much better about yourself after so do you feel better about yourself after smoking a joint? That's the question. How do you like that segue, Natasha? I should get a thumbs up on my screen here any second. But my friend David Ellison, he's the owner of Scarlet Fire Cannabis. We're going to put him on the air here in a second. But once you get him started, you can't get him to stop. So I'm going to get the story in real quick, right? People who use medical marijuana cards to treat pain. American, okay, American uh, um 
survey and, and story. Um, get their cartridge free pain, anxiety, depression, face and heightened risk of addiction, follow and improve the symptoms and so on. No improvement of pain, depression or anxiety. The study found that obtaining a medical marijuana card and using cannabis products with the required medical oversight to treat pain, anxiety or depressive symptoms did not significantly improve their uh, performance. Interesting because the government of Canada will pay for uh, a marijuana prescription for military vets to treat their PTSD and have for years, years. So um, I've had many patients that have been uh, on that uh, on that program. Uh, push for medical marijuana, medical cannabis has surged in popularity in recent years, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, story goes on to say there's no medical proof that it actually works. I've got hundreds and hundreds, probably over 500 patients in the last five years, six years, maybe longer, that, um, oh, maybe longer, maybe last decade, that have done very well with both uh, CBD and THC in the right combination. David Ellison, my friend, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Yona. My pleasure. Thanks for being on. Um, I know you're a busy guy and you got stuff to do with kids and family, so we won't keep you too long. But um, this sounds to me like a bunch of crap, brother. Like, I mean, I know, like I've sent you patients, you and I have talked many times, you know, in terms of, of, of how CBD works versus THC and the combination, whether they should eat it, smoke it, put it down their tongue, whatever, right? Um, we know that we're treating people and they're getting, at least their symptoms are getting better, does it really matter that they might use it for the rest of their life, quote-unquote, they're addicted to it? Does it really matter? Well, there are uh, some studies that do show that that people can have problems with addiction in cannabis. Uh, I, I, I think it's rare. Uh, you know, cannabis or the choice to use cannabis is, is a personal one. And, and uh, when we look at that, at that study, uh, one of the things it said was that, that the participants in the study said that their lives improved, whether it was sleep or mood or other things. Appetite. And, and that's the reason for more follow-up. And, and cannabis, at least in my view, uh, should be used to improve the quality of your life. And if it does that, then it's working for you. So if I was to say to you that um, I think when I take something to improve my, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better word, my ability to pee, and I'm going to take it for the rest of my life, um, I, am I reliant on it? Am I addicted to it? You know, I'm going to be reliant on it for sure. Um, and I understand that what we're talking about here is cannabis use disorder as, a, as the negative side of this equation. But for a lot of patients that I send to you and that you and I talk about and that I see, they're on all kinds of wicked meds to begin with that we're now scaling back from because they can't function. They can't sleep. They can't eat. They can't feel. You know, I've right. got patients that are, have, they're on anxiety meds and they just can't feel. You know, they've, they've lost someone. They broke up in a relationship. They don't feel sad. They don't know why. But when you get them on a regime of, of CBD more so than C THC, so CBD being, why don't you explain the difference, actually? You're the expert. So, so the difference between I, CBD I mean, and THC. Comment, I can't comment on any of the, the, the medical drugs that yeah, are, I understand, that I understand. and I also can't give medical advice, but, but, but I, what I we do understand about cannabis is, um, is that it helps create balance within your system. There's something called homeostasis and homeostasis is a process in our bodies that regulates us. It regulates water and salt and, and sleep and appetite. And, uh, because, can, uh, CBD in particular 
prevents the breakdown of endocannabinoids in your own body. And these endocannabinoids... Okay, so st- 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 stop ahead. there for a second. Let's explain to people, just because I, I know you just... you, you got it, it makes sense to me, but there's people out there that don't know what an endocannabinoid is sure. and don't know the difference between... So people don't understand the difference between CBD and THC. To them, it all looks like weed. What's the difference? Sure. So, so inside the cannabis plant, we have maybe about 140 different cannabinoids. What we hear people talk about a lot is THC and CBD. THC is is the cannabinoid that gets you high. And we know what THC does is that it binds to certain receptors in our brains. There are two receptors in our brains, endocannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2. And those receptors... Uh, or the, the endocannabinoids bind to the receptors, and that helps the brain to know where to regulate, where to repair, and where to heal. So the, 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 what CBD does is that it prevents those endocannabinoids from being broken down by certain enzymes in your brain. And the longer those endocannabinoids stay alive in your body, the longer it's able to do its work and telling the brain what parts of the body need to be regulated, uh, where you need balance, uh, and where you need repair. And how does that differ from, and so you're talking about the CBD portion, which is the what I call the Correct. medical part of the marijuana. But is there, is there you know, are you finding that, pay, oh, I can't ask you anything medical. So you just tell me if I ask it the wrong way and I'll ask it differently. Like, sure, no problem. Kind of like a deposition, right? Um, if, if, uh, if, so is there is there a met do you find that people come to see you for THC products as well uh, from so for example uh, the, uh let me rephrase it and maybe I'll make it easier I know that the government provides uh, military vets with um, pretty much unlimited amounts of marijuana based on a prescription from a proper doctor um, and it's THC not just CBD uh, because we've had to deal with some patients like that in our facilities um, so Obviously, there's some benefit that you've at least read about that talks about the benefits of THC in in the mental health process, or is it really just CBD we're talking about? For, for sure. Now, now, uh, you know, THC or using THC should be discussed in connection with your with your doctor because it's not for everyone. But THC, it, it, I mean, it binds to the to the your, your endocannabinoid receptors very similar to the way the endocannabinoids that your body naturally produces uh, binds to your, to, to your endocannabinoid receptors. CBD doesn't bind to those receptors. So T, the THC may help with things like pain, with, with other ailments. Uh, gotcha. um, and, and, and what the CBD does, the THC and, and the CBD sort of work together. So the THC binds to these, these uh, endocannabinoid receptors, which will help the body, could help the body, deal with inflammation or pain or other issues. And the CBD extends the life of those of of those endocannabinoids or the cannabinoids you introduce to your body like THC and uh, allows them to work for a longer period of time so it's actually an enhanced so CBD with a touch of THC which is what you usually see in a in a prescriptive product um, is pretty much the uh, that's why that kind of works they fire one fires the other let me let me so, well, there's something called gets... the entourage effect and the what we believe is that all of the com- compounds in the cannabis plant work together 
to, to produce effects in our system. So CBD alone is not going to be as beneficial, or at least we think is not going to be as beneficial uh, as CBD and THC or CBD and other, uh, and other cannabinoids. Like, for example... Okay. CBN is a cannabinoid, which is commonly thought to assist with sleep. I'm talking to David Ellison. He uh, is the owner of Scarlet Fire Cannabis. They're on Bathurst Street in New York. I highly recommend if you're interested in marijuana North- for for other benefits um, that you uh, that you give him uh, a call or drop in there and see them. They're, 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 him and his crew are very, very knowledgeable. They're not just trying to push a bunch of weed on people. They actually know what the hell they're talking about. When we come Thanks back, so much, we're going to talk to my friend Marcel Wilson. He's the founder of One by One Movement. We're going to talk about how hospitals are helping gun victims and such. This is Jonah Bud here, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Jonah Bud, only on 640 Toronto. The province recently announced it was scrapping license plate stickers effective March 13th and would be refunding drivers who've been paying for one since March of 2020. Checks would start going out at the end of April, provided all outstanding fines and tickets have been paid up. But scammers are hoping you didn't pay attention to those details and have sent out text messages purporting to be from Service Ontario. The message reads, as you know, we have removed all license plate stickers on all vehicles, so we are giving you back $120. Get hold of it here and a link is provided followed by data rates may apply. Do not click that link. Service Ontario does not issue refunds in this manner, nor does it reach out via text. Any correspondence is done via the mail, and you can go to the Service Ontario website to ensure you actually qualify for the refund. Tina Trajani, Global News. Well, there you go. Welcome back. This is Jonah Budd on Road to Recovery here on 640 Toronto. Thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, That uh, was my opening segment. You just heard it uh, on the news. Basically, all these scams that are out there, uh, understand that the government and such and people, police and and uh, federal uh, federal officers that may come and, and get you and all that, they don't operate over text. You don't get text messages to pay things or check your, your email or to check your credit card information and so on. Lots of scams out there, and lots of people are being taken advantage of. I'm fortunate to this, this evening to have Constable Jennifer Dagg with us tonight uh, from the Peel Regional Police. Uh, Constable Dagg, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so are we going with Constable or Jennifer? Oh, you can go with Jennifer. Okay, perfect. Uh, Jennifer, um, lots of little, like, social media has really opened the door for lots of people, especially, you know, seniors, people in their uh, over 50, for example, who are 60 that haven't, uh, you know, really experienced the world of social media. So getting all these messages about things like, uh, we've got a couple of them here just to point them out to you. You know, there's the acquaintance that you've never met. Some scammers act like there's someone that you know, like a family message. Hey, I haven't talked to you in a long time. You know, click here and we'll get together. Um, you know, your package is pending. FedEx is waiting for you to click here so that you can get your package earlier. All this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Share with us. Let's let's teach people. Let's see if we can give uh, some advice to help people uh, not fall uh, victim to some of these uh, scams out there. Well, we'll go with the first one that uh, you opened up with because it's new. And uh, on February 27th, uh, the, uh, the officers that were working on that, it was a Sunday, had uh, received a Twitter shared on um, social media, and uh, they had tagged us in their posts, and we had reposted it on our corporate account, and um, it's a it's a phishing scam, and it comes in the form of an email or a text, and as you said, are very common, 
And uh, with the new provincial measures coming into place, uh, scammers are pivoted uh, quite quickly to create a plausible situation whereby perhaps someone would believe that there would they would be receiving a refund for their license plate stickers or, sorry, validation stickers. Um, I would suggest anytime you receive an email or a text from an unsolicited source, immediately treat it as a scam. Uh, wow. So, it's, it, so unless you absolutely know, assume that someone's out to take advantage of you and not your long-lost cousin Billy who's actually searching you out to, to reconnect, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, there's there's the one out there. I, I, I get it at least once a month. I get a message. Uh, I can't tell you over what. Um, it's usually over Facebook, I think, or LinkedIn, or Facebook, or Instagram, one or the other. Um, they where I get a message saying, uh, uh, "Hey, you know," and it comes from a, an, an email address I under, I recognize. You know, it's my buddy Billy. Uh, hey, Yona, um, down in the in the Bahamas, having a real problem. I uh, just need access to some money to get home. Uh, can you wire it to me? Here's my information. Thanks, Billy. Uh, looks real, smells real, feels real. Of course, I know better. Um, first thing I do is reach out to Billy and go, hey, you've been hacked. Um, that stuff is really its hard to kind of sift through because sometimes if you're not paying attention and you don't have your glasses on, uh, it looks yeah. like it could be the real deal, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, there's a list of like the lottery scams. There's the emergency scams. There's an advanced fee scam. Uh, there's the romance scam. Um, there's also <laughs> the possibility of, you know, with the, um, uh, the tax season coming up yeah, as well, right? right. Uh, you know, let's, that's, let's, ta- let's talk, let's talk about that one. Let's, why don't you tell us about that one where they're, uh, it's supposed to come from Revenue Canada. Share that one with us. If you well, I, I, have you received one? Cause I have received one. Yeah, it's a a CRA something, right? It's a CRA filing or something? And uh, we are moving into the tax season. uh, So uh, we are anticipating seeing an increase in the number of a CRA tax scam. Emails, uh, text, uh, also, you know, they advise you of a refund. And um, the Service Ontario and the Canadian Revenue Agency or whatever organization out there, do not ever click on provided links. Uh, do not call the phone numbers they provide. Uh, don't go to the emails they suggest or ask you to click on. Um, take a second when you see that text and think, you know, stop engaging with the text or the email. Um, there are some text or emails where it allows you to, you know, converse back and forth, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, don't, don't do that. I wouldn't suggest doing that and engaging with it. Um, independently look up the organization if it's something that you are not familiar with. Um, FedEx is another email scam that, um, that has, you know, I receive those and, um, definitely do your homework. And if it's, uh, and always be skeptical, skeptical and cautious is what I would suggest. What? Um, how are we able to actually police this? I mean, you're, you're talking about things that consumers can do, and, and that's really what I what I asked you in the onset to, to you know, what, what can we do to make everybody a little safer? Uh, but <clears throat> I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
I, I was getting, I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a crisis worker. I run a crisis practice. I got a lot of people in, in different facilities and residence and such that we, that we operate. So, you know, my phone is on all the time. And I do often get phone number, phone calls from places that I don't necessarily recognize the phone number. And for the sure. most part, well, for the most part, I send a message saying, this is Yona Bud. I'm tied up right now. Please send your message by text. So I usually can, you know, but, but the problem is sometimes, and I, I look at my phone every time it rings. So the problem is for, you know, months on end, I was getting, uh, scam or, or, or spam type phone calls. Uh, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen a day, different phone numbers in, in sequence. I'd phone my, my carrier at the, at, who, at, you know, was, uh, is, uh, Rogers at, at the time and said, you know, can you block them? The problem is you can't. So the, the, when you start working with phones and cell phones and that kind of stuff, which is what this new, the, all these new, over the last few years, these new scams are, are focused on, the, the, the phone companies themselves can't do anything to filter or block. Um, what, what, what can you do as a, as a policing organization uh, to help people that are getting these, if anything, that are getting these you know, continual phone calls? And by the way, when, once you answer, just so you know, once you answer even by accident, you're now on a live list. If you don't a- answer, you're on a dead list, which means hopefully it's going to go away after a while. If you answer, you're on a live list. Now you're valuable because you're a live body. They're going to sell you to somebody, right? So h- how, what, what, can, what can you do as a policing organization or what can people do to protect themselves? With that, uh, depending on what phone you have as well, you can block a phone number from your actual phone. Right. Um, they will then attempt to send you another message by another phone number. Um, but if you recognize that you know for sure you know nobody at that number, you block it. And eventually you will become a member on that dead list. However, it, you can report it to a police service, to the okay. Fraud Bureau, and okay. or you can also report it to the uh, Can-Am Anti-Fraud Center as well, in anything. Constable Jennifer Dagg with uh, Peel Region Police. Um, love to have you come back and uh, keep us informed. And I want to talk to you about the canine stuff you did. That excites me a lot, too. Uh, so please join us again. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we, you know, we're getting to that end of the show. I want to let you guys know that I love you. You are the best audience ever. We appreciate you joining us. We're hopeful that uh, some of this uh, impacts you in a positive way, um, whether you've just uh, enjoyed the content uh, or, in fact, may actually help you uh, going forward in your, some of your life challenges and struggles <clears throat> excuse me that's what we're here for so just remember love the one you're with kiss the people that are important to you give them a hug let people know that they're special it, you can never do that too much right you can never let somebody uh, know that they're special too often because frankly they don't get tired of hearing from hearing of it even they say no no come on that's you don't bother you no no they love it people love to hear that they're special that they're important and that you care about them so i care about you i'm giving you all a giant virtual hug we're going to do all of this again next week. Uh, just remember, get out there, spread nice, right? Just spread nice everywhere you go, and nice comes back to you. Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto.